Well, we've been uh, reading from Philippians for many weeks now, and today is the day we finish up. So I'll be reading the entirety of chapter four. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do this, all this, through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thanks for reading, Sue. Uh, welcome, everyone. My name's Sam. I lead our Unichurch congregation that means it meets at 6 p.m. on Sundays. That's my joy to explore this passage with you all this morning. Let me share a, uh, a childhood memory of mine. So I'm about 10 years old, I think, with my mum and my dad, and my younger sister, my younger brother, and we're by a river somewhere. I have this snapshot memory that rises to my mind often. And the memory is only a moment, really. It's quite a fleeting memory. I don't remember where we were. We were on holidays somewhere, I think, and we'd stopped by a river to eat lunch that we got from the bakery or something like that. And I remember there were swans on the river and there was a cannon or maybe a war memorial, something like that, by the edge of the water. And we were sitting on a picnic blanket and Dad and I decided to race back and forth to the cannon across the grass. And so we ran kind of back and forth while Mum and the other kids sat and watched us and, and laughed as we ran. My dad's actually here this morning, so maybe we could recreate this after the service for you. <laughs> I remember there was an, an older couple sitting on a bench watching us and kind of laughing too as they watched our family life. And I'm not really sure why that memory often comes to my mind, but I think maybe it stayed with me as a moment of, of deep and enduring peace that lodged itself in my memory. And that memory, it's not like a, a kind of a ray of sunshine through a dark childhood kind of memory. I, I had a wonderful childhood filled with lots of great memories. But for whatever reason, I've hung on to that moment of peace. I wonder if you have memories like that. There's something that, that sticks with us, something that's so powerful about that kind of experience of, of peace, of something like shalom in the Bible that experience of everything the way it should be. Sometimes for me, that particular memory, it comes to my mind when I'm sad about how some things have changed in my family since then. And I long for something that was, but now isn't anymore. We all long for peace, for that experience of everything being the way it should be. But what we experience day to day is sometimes, perhaps often, quite far from that vision of peace, isn't it? It's quite far from sitting by a river on holiday. Though we long for peace, we experience stress and conflict and busyness. Ukrainians long for peace, but they experience war. Conflicted families long for peace, but they experience heartache. Our minds long for peace, but sometimes they experience depression, anxiety, fear. I wonder, what are the circumstances or the experiences that might oppose peace in your life? I thought maybe uh, this morning we'd mark a significant but perhaps unwelcome milestone for us as a community at St. Jude's. This Sunday, two years ago, was our very first online service so, a uh, happy second COVID birthday, St. Jude's. It's been great to do it with you. W one of the things that's been so difficult, I think, about that two years of our lives has been the way that different parts of our lives have been out of 
alignment, out of right relationship with each other. And so our sense of, of peace, of integration, of wholeness is disrupted and, and compromised. The different parts of our life have, have become either too overlapping or they've become disconnected. And our, our peace is, is affected by that. It's disrupted. But the life that God calls us into is a life of peace. And it's a life of peace that he calls us into that can endure and, and underpin even experiences as disorienting as the last two years of our lives. The vision for our Christian lives here in Philippians 4, for this life brought about by the Holy Spirit, is a life of peace. The deep, the transforming truth of these verses in Philippians chapter 4 is that in Jesus we can have peace which cannot be shaken by circumstances. In Jesus we can know peace which is just as real in the shadow as in the sunshine. Peace which is just as sustaining in the desert as it is running races by a river. In the language of the passage, peace which transcends all understanding. God desires that peace for us. He offers that peace for us. And we're going to focus this morning on verses 1 to 9 of this chapter, particularly as we explore the life of peace that God calls us to. When we come to final chapters in the New Testament epistles like this, there's often a kind of a collection of final encouragements and exhortations and instructions, sometimes covering quite a, a range of topics. And there's requests and personal greetings as the writer tries to kind of get everything that they want to into those last paragraphs of their letter. And so there's different kind of things that we can do. We can try and cover the whole letter. We can try and unpick the personal greetings and the requests. Perhaps we can try and do some gymnastics and try and get the whole chapter into three neat alliterated points. Today, we're going to focus uh, on drawing out the vision for the Christian life that Paul leaves the Philippians and leaves us with, uh, particularly in verses 1 to 9. It's a vision for peace. What I love about these verses is how Paul addresses the Christian life as a wonderfully integrated whole. He speaks to people's relationships, to their hearts, to their minds. He, he understands, he, he treats us, he writes as people are integrated, whole beings. And so we're going to consider each of those parts of ourselves, how they make up who we are, and draw out the peace which God offers us. So first, let's think about peace in our relationships, peace with each other. God desires us to have peace with one another. Which makes sense, right? Because that's kind of the heart of the gospel. That's the center of the whole Christian message, an announcement of peace. It's the announcement of peace between God and humanity, the restoration of that relationship which we broke and he fixed. And it's the way to true peace with one another as well. As we're drawn into the new life of God's family, we're drawn into a community that's marked by Peace. Have a look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy 
and crown. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Can you see that verse just oozing the kind of relationship that Paul has with these people? There's deep affection, close like family. His, his joy in seeing their progress in the gospel. Maybe you remember back at the start of our series in Philippians how Paul opened his letter. Similarly, affectionate language. He said, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. I have you in my heart. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. These people, these Christians, are Paul's brothers and sisters in the sense that they're adopted into the same family of God with him. But even beyond that, that kind of theological reality, it's expressed in their relationship in the relational reality, he, he longs for them. He rejoices in them. He's homesick to be with them. Through the gospel, God gives us peace with one another. And it's expressed in these relationships of deep affection and unity. I wonder if that's your experience of Christian community. It's, it's our relationships, it's those lives that we've invested in and changed, those people who we've pointed to Christ, those wounds that we've helped to heal, they really matter to God. Our, our relationships are the legacy, the joy, the fruit of our lives. Look at what Paul says of the Philippians there in, in verse 1. You are my joy and my crown. My joy and my crown. They're the joy of his life and they're his crown. That, that word there, crown, it indicates like the, the wreath which an athlete would receive uh, in victory. The great prize of Paul's life and ministry are the lives that he's invested in, the people that he's changed. Ours here in, in Melbourne is a pretty highly individualised culture in a lot of ways. This is quite different to the vision that we see around us. We're not really kind of set up to see ourselves fundamentally as enmeshed in deep relationships. We see this, this kind of movement towards the individual in all kinds of ways expressed in our culture. Things like uh, something that I find interesting among some of my peers, the rise of small weddings, right? Just maybe two people and their parents or maybe just them and a celebrant no longer seen as, as the bringing together of two whole families and communities, but just a focus on one individual and another individual together. Or, or things like the rise of single-person single households, uh, what's been termed the loneliness epidemic, or the one in three Australians who don't feel part of a group of friends. The, the list goes on and on towards this shift from the community to the individual. But that's, that's not our story. One day you will stand before the throne of God in heaven and you won't just give an account for what you did by yourself, but for how your life impacted those around you. You'll stand before God and you'll answer for how you loved, how you cared how you served, how you forgave and sought forgiveness, how you reconciled, how you worked together in the gospel with others. Our relationships deeply matter to God and he desires peace. And as Paul holds up 
peace in this community in Philippi, particularly in conflict between two of its members, there are lots of clues here why peace is really important to God. Peace because, as we've seen, we are one another's joy and crown. We're the fruit of each other's lives. Peace for the sake of gospel partnership as well. That's the focus on uh, verses 10 to 20, which we won't spend much time in this morning. But as, as Paul returns to where he began, to his thankfulness for the partnership in the gospel which the Philippians share with him. Peace between us, like peace between Paul and the Philippians, means fruitful ministry and attractive community to outsiders, kingdom growth. It's a picture here of peace through the conflicts of life as well, right? Because, of course, life involves conflict and and disagreement and sometimes real strain on relationships. That's in view here as Paul addresses Euodia, Euodia and Syntyche, these two godly servants of the gospel who are in conflict among the community. And so Paul encourages them to unity as he focuses on their relationship rather than on the issue that's causing them disagreement. And he involves the community around them to help them reconcile. Because we'll always have differences, we'll always have misunderstandings, we'll always have clumsy interactions. There's a good chance there's people in the room who you've shared these kind of experiences with. Peace doesn't just come through agreeing on everything, but through a deep, shared mind, a shared focus on the truth and the importance and the call of the gospel. Billy Graham's wife was once asked if she agreed with everything that her husband taught. I've heard a few of her quotes, and she seems awesome. She's very witty. She replied that it was her opinion that if two people agreed on everything, then one of them wasn't necessary. (laughs) Peace doesn't just come through agreeing on everything, but it comes through having the same mind, the same focus on Jesus and his gospel and its call the same orientation towards Christ, the same desire for godliness and and for the growth and spread of the gospel. So we're called to peace with one another, peace in our relationships. But one of the things that's so evident in this passage, like we've already talked about a little bit, is how, how integrated and connected we are as individuals. And so, so what Paul goes on to do is to move from focusing on peace in our relationships with one another to turning to the inward parts of who we are, all these connected parts of our beings. Let's think about peace in our hearts. Read with me from our verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's lots that we could dig into in these verses. I'd love to have a whole sermon on these verses, but... As we address them here, I think that there are two key questions that might help us to understand a bit of what Paul's talking about here. Two questions. What's God calling us to do here? And what will God do if we follow his call? 
What's God calling us to do and what will he do if we follow his call? So what's God calling us to do here? Well, have a look through those verses as you look at them in front of you there for the the imperatives, which means the the instructions or the, the commands, the exhortations in these verses. Is it rejoice? Again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Do not be anxious. Present your requests to God. I think what Paul's doing here is he's calling the Philippians, and so God's calling us to a whole orientation of our hearts in these verses, a whole integrated life attitude of peace. Lots of people will struggle, particularly with verse 6 there, to understand what that means. Maybe that was your reaction as we read the phrase, do not be anxious. For some of us who battle with anxiety, that's a hard word to hear. So is this like, is this like uh, if I was to tell Ronnie in the middle uh, of a robust conversation that we were having to calm down? Those magic words that achieve the exact opposite of what they intend to? I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on here. Scripture's not naive or unsympathetic about the experience of anxiety or or other mental health conditions. In fact, a biblical worldview gives us wonderful explanatory power for afflictions in our mental health as we experience a fallen world in every part of our integrated selves, in our relationships, in our bodies, in our souls, in our minds. In fact, the word here for anxious is one that's used in other places in the New Testament as well, which can help us to understand a bit of what it means. It's used in the story of Mary and Martha. Maybe you're familiar with that story. As, as Martha rushes around trying to get the house in order while Mary sits at Jesus' feet. And Jesus lovingly calls Martha away from her anxiety to instead listen to his words. The same word's also used to mean concern, when concern's actually quite a right and, and appropriate response. Christians are to be concerned, brackets anxious, for the welfare and the growth of other believers. Sometimes God wants us to be anxious. And for some of us, part of our experience of the fallen world is that our, our, our bodies undergo changes and imbalances which which can give rise to a different kind of anxiety. But it can be hard to know, can't it? It can be hard to know, am I feeling anxious because I have a body that chemically is overreacting to a threat or am I feeling anxious because I've let sin take control? That's not always an easy question to answer. I think as Paul here urges Christians to not be anxious, it's, it's not a command which, which dismisses or downplays how complex anxiety can be. Not at all. I, I read this as quite the opposite, actually, as he urges prayer when anxiety threatens. Imagine you're drowning and the lifeguard grabs your arm to pull you into the boat and says, don't worry, I've got you. Is he expecting you to enter some kind of state of serenity as you leave behind your concerns, your worries about the water? Of course not. He's he's comforting you. He's assuring you that he won't let go. 
And God says, don't be anxious. I've got you. I won't let go. If you experience anxiety, that's not sinful in itself. Your first reaction doesn't need to be, I'm disobeying Philippians 4.6. Absolutely not. Rather, the invitation here, I think, is to respond by bringing yourself to God, crying out to him in prayer, in every situation with thanksgiving. Cry out to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. We can stand firm in the gospel of peace. Peace with one another, peace in our hearts, and peace in our minds. Mark Twain wrote this. What a wee little part of a person's life are his acts and his words. His real life is in his head and is known to none but himself. All day long the mill of his brain is grinding and his thoughts not those other things, are his history. The life of our mind matters. John Locke, he wrote, temples have their sacred images and what influence they always had over a great part of humanity. But in truth, the ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. The life of our minds matters. The life of our minds matters to God. And in God, we can find peace in our minds as in our hearts. From verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Mark Twain's so right, isn't he, that that so much of our life happens inside our heads. I wonder what kind of life do you live inside your head? Jesus, of course, said it better than Mark Twain or John Locke. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. The life inside us, in our minds, is such a big part of who we are. In Romans 12, 2, we read, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Your minds. Do you see the place of the mind in God's transforming work of us? If the life of our minds is far from God, then our our behavior, our actions, our words, our relationships will remain far from God. The life of our minds is where the rest of our life is born. Evil can come from our minds. And likewise, peace and joy and love can come from our minds. So what's your mind filled with? What neural pathways are you laying that shape your life? I love the picture in these verses of filling our minds with goodness. If we fill our minds with all that's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, 
Imagine how will that flow from our minds out through our words and our actions and our relationships. If an underground spring of water is salty, the stream that emerges will be salty and unfit. But an underground spring of fresh water flows out into a fresh stream. This isn't a call here to be a kind of holier-than-thou, out-of-touch, buzzkill Christians who just watch Christian movies and listen to Hillsong. But I think it is a call to be in the world, yet not of the world, to be embedded in our culture but not controlled by our culture. I have this other memory, another childhood memory that stays with me but quite differently of one night deciding to watch a, a horror movie that lots of my friends had been watching and talking about lots, and I wanted to share that experience with them. But by the end of this particular movie, I, I could feel my mind having been polluted by it. By the end of this movie and the, the violence that was in it, I felt dirty and regretted it and immediately wished I hadn't watched it. I still have a few particular scenes from that film that, that kind of linger in my mind 15 years later. I still regret that choice. Right, now, that doesn't mean that all I ever watch is Veggie Tales, right? <laughs> but but it, it, it reminds me, it encourages me, it challenges me to think carefully about what I put into my mind and how that affects what comes out from me. So if, if you're consuming... TV, movies, video games, whatever. If you know that what you're doing is, is polluting your mind and taking you further from God, then lay it at Jesus' feet and walk away. You don't need those things. They're not good for you. They're slowing you down as you walk after Jesus. So just let them go. I regretted watching that film, but you're never going to regret letting go of things that are unhealthy for the sake of Jesus. Do you remember that, that scientific experiment that they often got you to do in school where you place a white flower in a glass of water and then you put food dye in the water and you come back the next day and the petals of the flower have changed colour as the dye has been drawn up through the stem into the flower? But that's what happens with us. When we feed our minds with good or bad, it flows up through our lives and shows itself through us. If you want to live out this call in Philippians 4 to a mind of peace, think about what are the inputs, what is going into your mind, how's it flowing through you and how's it coming out? So what might it look like for us to participate in God's work of bringing about peace in our minds? God transforming us by the renewing of our minds, as Roman puts it. If you see that the life of your mind isn't growing your peace, isn't growing you closer to Christ, what might you do? What might you change? Here are two ideas to, to finish with. One idea would be to, to intentionally assess your thought life. Because we don't often do that, right? That's part of what those quotes allude to, how our thought lives rule us. Our thoughts are just our thoughts. We don't really think about our thoughts. They just happen. 
But why not take a chance to, to observe your inner life, to observe your thoughts for a day? You could, you could try and remind yourself by, you could write Philippians 4.8 on the back of your hand and then every time you notice it, think about what is going through your mind. Or you could make a little list of the games that you've been playing or, or the, the TV and movies you've been watching and then assess which bring you closer to God, which take you further away from him. Or another idea is you could look to role models in your life and ask them about the life of their minds. That's, that's verse 9 in our passage, right? Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. That's a scary verse for those of us who are pastors. But it's true that we can look to whoever is in our lives that model the Christian life to us and we can be like them in what we fill our minds with. Could you do either of those things this week to intentionally nurture the life of your mind and live that life of peace which God invites us to? There's a a Cherokee folk story of a grandfather telling his grandson about the two wolves which always fight within him. When the grandson asks which wolf wins, the grandfather replies, the one I choose to feed. So feed your minds, feed your hearts, feed your relationships with peace, and from them peace will flow. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why don't I pray that it would? Would you pray with me? God of peace, you invite us into life with you, a life of peace in who we are. Please bring that about in each of us, Lord. Guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus.